welcome to the podcast for the Center for Economic Inclusion. I'm your host, Lissa Jones. I'm so excited to be in studio with founder and president Tawana Black. We are on site in Montgomery, Alabama, attending the Reckoning for Truth, Trust, and Racial Justice Tour. President Black, welcome. Thank you so much. There is no one I would rather be here reckoning with. I must say the same. That is completely mutual. Should we get right into it? Yes, we should. Here we go. Let's jump in. Good evening, everyone. Thanks so much for um, not only the day that we've had, but the evening that we've had as well. We thought that, um, uh, one, you needed time over dinner to be able to simply be and uh, to be together. And I hope that that's been good. And we also thought that it could be good for us to have an opportunity to have some conversation, not only about the day that we've had today and yesterday, but about the very topic that we're here to work on together, reckoning for truth, reckoning for trust, reckoning for racial justice and what that means. And we have been blessed um, because our um, event planner is so much more than that, um, uh, as you have gotten to see, but is also a producer of podcasts and suggested that um, we might explore that. And so Lissa and I are going to do just that. Um, But we're also going to give you an opportunity to join the conversation. So we are in a bit of a fishbowl, if you will, so that we can engage together in this. And so we'll start the dialogue, um, but then we'll invite, as you see, we have two empty seats. And so um, I don't, I encourage you, don't wait for us to pause because I'll be honest, um, at the end of this day, um, while some of your names are still standing out to me in the absence of being close enough to see name tags, I can see people and experiences, but not names. So it'd be great if you feel the need to just come on up and um, join and act like you would if you were in my church where you just move um, all over uh, the building um, as the spirit should lead you. Does that work? Fantastic. Fantastic. Welcome, Tawana. Thank you so very much, Lissa. I am so glad to be here with you in Montgomery, Alabama tonight. Let's talk about the reckoning for racial truth and justice. Today, we were at the Legacy Museum, and Brian Stevenson posits that the last 500 years of our experience has involved enslavement, to lynching and terror, to the movement for civil rights, voting rights. And now he says that we are in a position of mass incarceration and that we have never even drawn one free air in this country. What does that have to do with economics, Tawana? The opportunity to be and the opportunity to breathe free. Just to sit in that for a moment, just to rest in it, to think about it, to sit in it um, is, is humongous and is so heavy. Lissa, and and before I can even begin to dive down the economic pathway, just before coming down, I uh, opened a book of poems about our movement and our life, and one that stuck out for me was, uh, I won't remember the title, but was about Don't Bury Me, Where Men Are Still Enslaved. And when we think about having free breath, I was struck that in, in, in the text we say, you know, the dead, let the dead bury the dead. Christ said, let the dead bury the dead. Go on and be about your life. But that even after death, someone would have experienced the pains of slavery, the pains of lynchings, the pains of bondage so heavily that the articulation in the poem was really syllable by syllable saying, I don't even want to be under the ground and know that the ghost of people who are still in bondage are passing by me. So find some place to take my body where people are free. When I think about how that relates to economics, all of us have some form of our life's work, whether that is that we work in a company, we work in a nonprofit, we own our own businesses, we do something that just brings us joy, but is our life's work. And if you've had the opportunity to do that and feel like you bring your full self to that work, and you're rewarded for it or compensated for it, that that statement of, you know, when you find the thing that you love, you'll do it even if you can do that for free is, is true. And yet the value of knowing that when you have poured everything in, that all of your gifts and talents have been poured in, that it's not just the currency, but it's also the full value of who you are. This experience today this experience the last two days, this experience when we were here together in March, this experience every time that we open up a book or we hear a testimony or read a story 
about our ancestors and their treatment on this soil caused the question of, of why. It caused the question of how long. It caused the question of justice and when enough is enough. And to know that slavery and incarceration are still economic systems, right? Are both economic systems. And yet that the language and narrative that we're taught um, is one that would suggest that those who have chosen to create laws that enslaved, right? White people who chose to create laws to enslave, who chose to continue to perpetrate those laws and just change them a little bit, right? Different shades of gray, um, still producing the same result have carried on a narrative that says, well, that's because people are, are different, right? That's because people are, are inferior. They're not good enough. They're not strong enough. And yet, as I walked through the museum today, witnessing, I said this to you, the witnessing the signs advertising black bodies and black people, those advertisements were not just about strength, physical strength that we think about in terms of economics, right? Labor. We're advertising brilliance. Talent, creativity, trustworthiness. This person can be trusted with your full treasure was one quote there. So to then, as we go through Reconstruction, have people come back and say, well, no, actually, these, this is a population who can't be trusted, or these are people who are inferior mentally or physically. You know, all the lies that we've been told and, and believed, quite honestly, right? And, and self-internalized, like, it, it's, it's, it's all connected. It's all connected. Tawana, you said so many powerful things, and I was with you today in the museum. I think about how education affects economics. That in the state of Minnesota, if you're black, every educational outcome is horrible for you. And if you don't have an education, you have a very difficult time getting a kind of job that's going to pay a livable wage. And if a man is hungry or a woman, wouldn't matter the color of your skin, you will do what it takes to be fed. And black people are criminalized for being locked out of jobs and economies of scale. And instead, we are demonized for it. Can you talk about the relationship between that demonization, lack of access to jobs, and the inability to accumulate or transfer intergenerational wealth for black families? Absolutely. When we think about that system that has locked us out of economic opportunity, I think it's important to start with some grounding of, of data and facts. And so in our state, in Minnesota, while we are known for some of the best of the best of everything, the best schools, the best careers, the best businesses, the best parks, the best trails, you name it, we've got it. From a wage equity perspective, people go to work every day in our community, in our state, and do the same exact job and are paid drastically different. And that has been the case across race, let me be explicit, across race. And that has been the case for more than a decade. Like, the, in terms of, the number's been growing. We've been widening that gap. We've known about it. We've known there was a disparity. We've worked on it. We've had coalitions. We've had efforts. The cost of living has multiplied. And yet we continue to pay people to do the same exact work, different wages. And in fact... The gap gets worse as you go up the educa education ladder. So while the narrative would paint a picture that this is about training, if only people would stay in school and get their education, we'd all be able to compete in the economy and move up the economic ladder. If only people would get the credentials that they need, they'd be able to move up the economic ladder. Actually, particularly when it relates to African-Americans and particularly in Minnesota, that gap gets worse with a bachelor's degree. It gets even worse with a master's degree, and it gets a little bit worse with a doctorate degree. So then we can't really call it anything but what it is and say, why is it that we don't value intelligence, work, hours, time, investment, degrees, credentials, you name it, brilliance, the same way in black bodies that we do in white bodies. Why are we okay with that? And then if we couple that with the campaigns to close racial wealth gaps, we know in our country wealth is accumulated primarily through housing, home ownership specifically. 
And yet we also know that our country has legally restricted the ability for African-Americans to gain wealth. And that while, yes, we can look and say, well, that was some time ago, wealth is passed down over generations and we have not righted those wrongs, if you will. I'll make up a word for a moment. We have not made those wrongs right. Get it. So the opportunity now to think about what happens when wealth has been extracted through housing policies, what happens when highways have been driven through business and commercial corridors and stripped away businesses and stripped away property? What happens when we've continued even since then to build housing and to build transportation systems? And yeah, we've actually, in those cases, we have gone in and used eminent domain and we've given people a little bit of something, but let's be real, it hasn't been the full value of what those neighborhoods were worth. And we've chosen to put those types of things through black neighborhoods and continue to strip out wealth. And then we add a wage gap to that and say, I still want you to be bearing the brunt of generations of wealth extraction, generations of harm, generations of racism, generations of slavery and racism and lynching. And I want you to go to work in an environment where people expect you not to be as good. But only that's the narrative. Because the data would suggest that people actually know we are twice. Like <laughs> people actually know, like, I'm gonna come in and kill it. Like, I don't know that I've ever walked in anywhere where people didn't know I was going to do that. Ever. Truth. I just, I don't. Like, as I walked through there today, I hadn't processed that thought out loud before, but as I walked through today, like, I actually don't, that's a narrative. That's a lie. We've been taught, but that's not real. Like, I don't believe that's really real, but I do think there are these other characteristics that we attach when we have disagreement. We disagree about the how when we don't fit into places and spaces, and that leads to only a wider and wider gap, which then contributes to an inability to get home ownership, to get to home ownership, to get to business ownership, to afford the things that our children need to be able to compete in schools that actually prepare them for the future, that don't just check the boxes, and maybe even give them straight A's, but on a scale that only prepares them to thrive it may be a d plus or a c minus average once they really matriculate into competing with their right peers and other places and spaces all of those things only continue to compound the gaps let's talk about fear Tawana. fear that i think employers have demonstrated the dei person is either white or they're non-white and if you're non-white then it's all on you like what do you think we should do and I'm like, well, you're the president, vice president, chief operations officer, chief financial officer. You hold the budget, the power, the policy making. What do you think we should do? What do you find when you are interviewing people who work in DEI and A, accessibility? Where's my lady? There you go. Accessibility. What do you find, Tawana, that practitioners are reporting about their experience in corporations trying to make change? Well, I think the data is the first when we're a data-informed organization, so you know I lead in that space. <laughs> I think it's interesting that just before George Floyd was murdered, two months prior to that, 60%, there was a 60% gap in the postings for DEI roles compared to other roles, which just basically means companies were cutting DEI positions at a rate of about 60%. And then a black man was murdered on all of our TV screens and computer screens. And suddenly every company, every foundation, every organization in America decided they needed 10 more DEI people, qualified or not, skilled or not. Some shade of brown get in this room, take a title, and help us fix what we haven't fixed in lots of time, lots of generations. If we don't hire one, then we'll hire consultants. We'll just keep this up. The challenge with that and what I hear from folks who are sitting in those spaces and places are exhaustion, pain, attacks, being under-resourced, no or very low budget, with very high expectations for what can be delivered both in the amount of capacity that can be delivered in, the amount of time it can be delivered in, isolation. When I did this work inside a corporation, I reported to the top. I didn't report to HR. Because my metrics, yes, had some talent metrics, but ultimately I was driving bottom line profits or the lack thereof for the company. Now we see equity and inclusion officers 
nice offices, but further and further and further away from the business, further and further and further away from the decision making, maybe even still reporting to the C-suite, but not being included in those executive retreats where the other business decisions are being made. We'll include you when we're talking about DEI. We'll include you when we're talking about inclusion. We'll include you when we're talking about age or race or gender, but not the business. And then when you say you have troubles getting that business leader to participate in your effort, well, I don't know. You need to speak his language. Struggling to speak the language because I'm not in the room when the language is being negotiated. We hear isolation. We hear fears about all of the weight of decades, maybe centuries in some cases, of failure being put on one person's shoulders to either solve this and get us out of it very quickly, or we'll be on to the next leader. So whether those leaders are full-time staff and executives or they're consultants, that same weight, that same pain, that same set of fears is there. And even for those who are in places and spaces that seem to be going well, it's interesting to me how much fear there is about the speed to have the flashy wins, the speed to get the campaign that's going to be big, the speed to have the event that's going to have the mega celebrity and the community and the people in the middle, the, the speed to make everybody feel like we're taking forward action that, that feels like it's better, to make the speed to feel like surely we're better than we were two years ago, the speed to do something so that when those commitments we made for 2025 come up, that we have a story to tell, the speed to have a, a line full of black folks who are going to sing our praises and say, yes, 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 they did good from that moment until 2025. That speed, while inside there's this aching of, wait a minute, I took this role because my community was counting on me to do something drastically different than had ever been done before and to do it with my community. Not for, not to, but with. And there's this ache and this pain, whether I'm talking to leaders who are in Oakland or talking to leaders who are in Omaha or in Oklahoma City or in St. Paul, the ache is the same. I have to take a moment of a breath. Truth is hard. Tawana, I think about our businesses and the way that inclusion has been set up as a loss. Like to include is not adding to the table. It's somebody's got to lose in order to gain. I think about industries like the Ordway, like Orchestra Hall, like the Twins Baseball Club. Like if there aren't going to be enough white people in the future to be able to fill your seats, who's going to fill them? And then diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility become a necessity of business. Is this your experience, Tawana? It absolutely is. It's it's interesting coming to the Twin Cities. It'll be 13 years that I've been in Minnesota um, at the end of this year. Prior to that, my work in this field was with corporations who had a deep um, consumer base, right? So cable companies, you're, every month people can choose to, to stay with you or to go. So you're very much motivated by understanding your customer and being sure that your products and your services are reflective of them, but also that your talent is reflective of them, your supply chain is reflective of them, your philanthropy is reflective. Everything has to be very connected because folks are going to choose you or not choose you, and they can make another choice every 30 days. Got to make that choice. Even in a B2B space, we had a B2B arm, same thing. You've got to be able to reflect that. In a place like Minnesota, where we've got 19 Fortune 5s, we've got a large number of privately held corporations and many others, but there's still that distance, enough distance, enough cushion from customers, enough cushion from stakeholders, even enough cushion, I would argue, from our employees and their real everyday experience with the outcomes of our decisions to keep us from doing the hard work. We don't walk into businesses and hear them really understanding how many of their employees are facing housing challenges. How many of their employees are transportation insecure, housing insecure? 
How many of their employees are working three jobs and still struggling to be able to truly not thrive, just get by? And what that experience looks like. We don't find employers who know that data, right? Who know it beyond the stats, but who and aren't just trying to solve it out here, but are trying to solve it in here by having those hard conversations and then saying, what must I do? To be sure that result is different in a year and five years and 10 years, there's a disconnect yet and still, even with the pain, even with the motivation we've had, there's still some disconnect that keeps us saying, well, I don't quite want to know that that pain is this close, um, that the atrocities are this close, that the errors are this close. And it keeps us disconnected in ways that keep the data the same. Right. So we look at the data and say it must be somebody else who did or didn't do something that kept our disparities the way they are. What if it's me? What if it's me? What if it's you? What if it's you who did not get up this morning with a mind to do something drastically different? What if it's you who sat quiet in a meeting when a policy was being created and didn't say, how do we know that's what's going to solve it? Who told us that? Who was in the room when that was decided, when it was created? What if it's you who let that contract go through knowing that it would mean that for the next 10 years, wealth still didn't flow into a black community because we refused to unbundle that major contract? And we knew that there were like two companies in the country who could compete for it at the scale that we had it at. And we didn't want to add any burdensome language to that RFP that might make it hard for them to be able to then go out and engage and include more businesses owned by people of color. So we didn't add that language and we didn't want to add any language about who their staff would be in their, their eight wage equity. We just didn't want to, what if it's you who isn't asking those questions that might be the day that unlocks everything? What if it's you, that's not a person who unlocks the possibilities. And what if it could be you? A participant shared with me today that Brian Stevenson is her new hero because one person had a vision to say that young children should never face the death penalty. And it grew into the Equal Justice Initiative that you saw today. Tawana, the dehumanizing of black people plays a significant role in whether or not we have access to the C-suite. Another participant told me today that she was told when she went to her company that you're not seen as a person in marketing. First, I see you as black. Then I see you as a woman. And then I might get to marketing. Has that been an experience you've heard at all? And how often? I think a little too often. A little too often. When we think about the steep barrier that exists to get into these places and spaces, to get in and, and know you have the confidence and the skills and the experience and the credentials to be there, and then have a statement like that said to you, that is that figurative lynching we talked about earlier. That is that exhausting of breath that sends a person into operating in fear. It sends a person into operating at poor performance, where we're then sitting some months later doing a nine box and saying, well, they were good, but I don't, I don't know really what happened. And yet somebody in that room knows exactly what happened. Somebody in that room knows exactly what they said the day they pulled all of the breath out of that leader. The day they pulled all of their grace out, they pulled all of their humanity out and said, come fit in this box. And I'm struck by how much we still struggle between those comments and the comments of, I don't see any color. I just see human. I just see one race, this lovely human race. And there's some careful tension that we have to be willing to interrogate, to sit in, to be curious about, to be taught, 
to fall down up and be graceful enough to get back up and dust off, bandage up our knees, and still get on that bike and ride it again. See, I'm committed to operating in a place that is anti-racist. I'm committed in a place of not doing harm, which means I have to see you. And yet I can't see you as only this. There's some fine tension there. How do you see people reckon with that tension, Lissa? We don't. We don't talk about it. We Minnesota nice that we shove it down until we hurt people, we harm people, and they leave. Then we say, well, that, you know, didn't last. And then we think we can just go find another one. Well, they didn't work out. We'll just pick up another. One time, many years ago, I was interviewing a number of young black boys on the radio. And they were charged with asking questions of other black men they could not see at the time where the men would answer later. And one of the young boys said to me, who would I be if there were no white people in the world? It was so hard to explain that people aren't white. It was so hard to explain why people who believe they're white have to take on a ferocity to protect it. It was so hard to explain what his life might have been had he not been interrupted by what he was seeing as people, but are actually policies and practices designed against his good. How many of you are willing to take out your HR manual, your finance manual, your operations, your SOPs, and are you willing to say who is most impacted by the decisions we are about to make? Are they here? If they are not, why are they not? And how do I go find them before I do harm? How do I know if my decisions have harmed others when I am so high up in the suite and I've been there, babe? that I can barely see the forest for the trees. How do I know how the people are doing? So Tawana, you have a series of opportunities companies can participate in. You have measures that can tell us about whether or not we are really committed and taking action with impact on the things we say that matter. Being a 54-year-old black woman, I can't tell you how frustrating it is for me that I have 13-year-old grandchildren who have to see the same thing as my 73-year-old father. So Tawana, what do you know about what we can do with the Center for Economic Inclusion and what you have learned so that my grandchildren, by the time they're 54, might be able to say, we live in a different place? Because it has to be that way for it has to be that way for all of our grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Today I read a statement on the wall that said white Southern identity is founded in the belief that white people are inherently better than black Americans. I think in our work, we start with that notion that all of us need to understand how we've been programmed about our own identity, consciously and subconsciously, as children, by family members, close and not close, by teachers, by media, friends, family, intentionally and not intentionally, but doing the hard work to start to write that down and understand how do I identify? What beliefs do I hold about my racial identity, who I am and how I show up in the world? And how do those beliefs also caused me to believe about other people. I'm so proud of you and for so many things and so many reasons. And today, one of them, just one of the many, was that you brought three black presidents, three black women presidents into one room. I'd like to ask the audience, how many spaces have you been in with three black women presidents? Congratulations. Today is number one. This is possible. Inclusion isn't a loss. What is inclusion, Tawana? Is it a growth or a loss? It's absolutely a growth. The only way businesses will continue to grow is by making inclusion a verb. It, it's the, the math is really clear. It is the only way businesses continue to grow. And, and I, I want you to hear me. Diversity, because we, we use these terms, and I think often incorrectly, diversity exists whenever there are more than one person in the room. If you lined my five sisters and I up in front of the room, all African-American, 
clearly all sisters, all women, but you have a lot of diversity in our age, in our educational background, in our experiences, and certainly in what we like and what we don't like, how fast we talk, how fast we do not talk, how we problem solve, how we conflict, resolve, and solve our communication approaches. You'd have a lot of diversity. Inclusion, though, requires action on somebody's part to say that matters or no, Amy's in charge. Which one is it going to be? And we don't get equity simply by having that diversity in the room. It just doesn't happen that way. We don't get equity because the scorecard starts to line up right on the demographics profile that we send to the EEOC or that we send to some vendor who we're getting a contract from who asks us what our numbers were. We get equity because we start by counting the loss, the loss of the beginning. And then we say, is it still worth the cost of us investing in all the ways that we have to, both the company, the organization, and me personally? Is it worth what it's going to cost me to do this? In starting the center five years ago, after it was designed, I took two months away from my design team because I knew it was going to cost myself and my family something. And I knew it would be big. I had no idea how big, but I knew it would be big. I took two months to reckon with that inside, to be really clear, had it in me. And then my family had it in them with two young kids for the pursuit ahead. Because God was who told me to start the center one year before that. And I knew I wouldn't stop till the day he said I could stop. So I had to be sure I had it all in me. We have to do the same reckoning to say, are you willing to go the distance in your personal walk, in your walk and holding other people accountable for this work, in wearing the T-shirt of people and communities you don't know all that well, but who you know enough about to say justice must be served so I'm going to wear that T-shirt when I'm in spaces and places where other people have not brought, been brought in yet until that door is wide enough for everybody to come in it. We all have to get there and to get there quickly because time is expiring. The dollars and cents tell us that you can Google not our website, McKinsey, uh, Brookings. Everybody has written a report on how good this is for business. And it's not new. Diversity Inc. has been writing about it for over 25 years. But that motivation to say, I do believe the pie can be big enough for all of us. So I don't just believe that it will be good for business for more black people to be at the table to have more contracts or to have equitable wages. But I believe that what I lose, because there is some giving up of power. I want to be clear. I don't want to make it seem all rosy and pretty. There is some giving up of power. There's some giving up of our comfort spaces. We got to go through it in order to get to it, right? So there's some pain points along this journey. But enough to say that what I lose is small compared to all that I'm going to gain. And I'm willing to do that. And my business is willing to do that. My family's willing to do that. That's what we've all got to be signed up for. Speaking of which, I'd like to ask our listening audience, if you'd like to come forward and join us in conversation, if you'd like to just leave a word or a thought, if you'd like to say something, you're more than welcome. You will be loved and respected. And if you don't, that's fine too. But if you would tonight or first thing tomorrow morning, Take out your phone and email yourself. What are you going to do when you get back to the work? And it doesn't need to be a paragraph because you won't do a paragraph. You don't have time for that. Are you going to speak up next time? Are you going to meet with the CEO? Are you going to say, I have to release the fear of the person who signs my check in order to do my work, even though I may lose my job? Think about what happens to a black person who's able to get a decent job, who then comes in and does exactly what you ask them to do, to come in and make change, include, do diversity, equity, inclusion, and accessibility, do all that. And then as soon as you do, goodbye, because now you're pressing too hard. So Tawana, what would you like people to think about committing to? as they take this back to the respective places where they go? Thank you for that question and for the push. I wanna encourage 
our friends the space to commit to being comfortable, being uncomfortable. To challenge yourselves in the places and spaces where you've been comfortable and you think, I'm doing the work, I'm doing the work, I'm a champion, that's why I'm here, because I'm already leading. Well, the smiles that we say that with tell me we're not doing enough. So I'd say commit first to being really comfortable, getting very uncomfortable. Second, I'd say get very comfortable partnering with organizations like ours in the hard work of not just designing the strategies, because that's hard work, but it's the easy work. Then setting the metrics to measure it, because this work can be measured in the same way that we can measure every other part of our businesses. And resourcing it responsibly, not equally, not equitably, but responsibly. Because if we look at the depth of the challenge you have just ex- witnessed walking through here, you know now I hope you will never sit again in a room where people are saying, well, but we gave this group this much, and so should we should give this group that much, and we should do this in that community. I hope you will never again sit quiet when those discussions are had because you now know the depths of harm that we are working to undo, whether we're working on talent and recruitment or we're working on pay equity or we're working on supplier, or whatever the solution is. If we're simply working on whether or not we're going to have a potluck dinner in the middle of the community, You know the depths of harm we're working to undo, so I hope that you will start to commit to responsive levels of investment. I hope that you'll commit to transparent ways of measuring the work. In each one of your bags, you had our Racial Equity Dividends Index report, and that was the first one. The second one will open in less than two weeks for businesses to start registering for. The report will come out next year. But I hope you'll commit to that work of year over year of pushing your company to say, we need to measure this work. And we need to measure it in transparency and solidarity with our employees, with our consumers, with the folks who are in our supply chains, with the folks we do community work with. We need to be transparently partnering with them to measure, to set goals, and to work in solidarity to achieve those goals. And I hope you'll continue the journey toward anti-racist learning. Oh, yeah. That learning what it means to be a person who is not only not racist, but moves from I'm not racist to I am anti-racist, meaning that I'm committed to every single day undoing oppression and racism without, within my entire sphere of influence and control. I am, thank you, President Black. I am so thankful to welcome a couple of participants with us here tonight. I will let you decide whether you want to say your names because this will be out all over the world and that's entirely up to you. And anonymity is fine too, we're on the radio. But I just want to say welcome and thank you for your courage in coming up. We're glad to have you. We'll start on this side because you are our first brave guest and then we'll move over here to our second brave guest. I'm not so brave. (laughs) Well, you know what? I'm gonna say you are, you're up here. So welcome, what's on your mind? I'm a little nervous. That's I, uh, okay. My name's Laura. Hi, Laura. I will say my name. Hi, Laura. Um, I am working on being anti-racist. Um, I don't. I don't know. I'm. I'm responding to so many different things. So I'm struggling with what the the kind of important thing to say is. But I find myself um, taking action, finding finding the reason to take action, finding kind of my why, and then reverting to comfort because I need comfort. We all need comfort Um, at a cost to those around me who don't have the privilege of the same comfort. And, you know, that extends to the job that I have, that the, the, the place that I live, the, all of the things, right. Um, and I think I'm looking for actions to, I don't know, I don't, I don't know, disrupt that push further. Cause I, I do think there's a necessity for that and I'm struggling to find that, I guess, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And, and, and how to do the things without the feelings of needing the feelings of feeling good to come back. Does that make sense? Good job. Excellent. 
almost, I feel like I'm in church. Can you say it again? (laughs) I can't do this work for my own good, right? But I have to do this work for my own good. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. 100%. That, that like identity, the concept of, and, and you said it, I appreciated that you said it, um, that you have to know that getting to know yourself then can help you in the work. I actually found a lot of um, growth, the work, because that understanding how the world treated identity helped me understand how the world had shaped my perspective of my identity. So that was Again, it's like there's it, it's the really challenging place as a white woman to get value out of the work. Thank you. Thank you. There's a real gift in our full, authentic vulnerability and sitting and sharing. So thank you. As you talked, I was drawn to a couple of things. One is the power of our self-accountability tools, and one is the power of shared accountability. I like in this work, I often boil it down to weight loss because that's my life's journey, like up and down, up and down. I know I do better when I have a good peer. I do best when I'm doing it for Tawana, when I'm completely clear on what my why is. And that why is driving me from the moment I get up in the morning and I want to reach for those wonderful little Swedish fish that you had over there (laughs) or some Twizzlers. But I need to reach for some water and then some fruit. When that why is there for me, when I've decided my why, not my company, not my doctor, not my friend, certainly not my husband, but I've decided my why. This is now so important to me that I am going to say no to me and yes to me all at the same time, if that makes sense, then my choices become really clear. And my accountability, it doesn't mean I get it perfect every day. It doesn't. There's a whole lot of nights where I go to sleep like, you know, you shouldn't have done all that today. But I'm conscious of that, right? Then there's the marrying of that with shared accountability, with telling my peer set, here's what I'm striving toward. In this case, I'm striving to not operate out of comfort, to not operate out of checking the box for goals, but to really get the thing done with everything that I've got in me. So I want you to hold me accountable when I'm doing it for the cookies and the applause. I want you to hold me accountable when I'm more geeked by the response that I get than I am by whether or not it's actually even making a difference and how I actually know that. And giving people permission to do that with us. And that's hard because sometimes the first two or three people we think of are not the right people. So we have to go further down that list to say, wait, as a white woman, am I putting that onus on a black woman who reports to me, who already is tired of me and just hadn't been able to say it? Or am I finding somebody else who might have a little more ability to really operate in that space and really hold me accountable? Am I doing my own learning and sitting in that space? And that's hard stuff. I have to do that. I sometimes, I, and I'll do this analogy with my husband, when I know I'm really doing bad, I'll say, where can't you just make me an arm um, exercise and, and program together? Now I'm saying this to the man who told me years ago, honey, if you get so big, you just can't fit through that door. I'll make that door bigger before I'm going to tell you about it. <laughs> <laughs> Wise man. <laughs> So, but I, it's easy for me to put it off on him. If I say he's my accountability partner, then if he doesn't remind me to go work out, then it's on him. So I got to find an accountability partner who is serious about my goals and serious about holding me accountable, not doing it for me, not pushing me, but holding me accountable for it. I think it's excellent. The other thing that I would say is when you belong to a group that thinks they're the majority, you don't want to be the one to make everybody feel bad. You don't want to be the one to call out race in the group. Because you don't want to be the one that's ostracized, that everybody talks about, oh, Lord, here she comes again. She's about to bring up white supremacy. She's about to say this. She's about to say that. And the person is ostracized. And so it's easy to go back to comfort, no matter what you look like on the exterior. The difference is that we don't have a choice. 
because I can't presto changeo. Not that I would want to, because I wouldn't, but I can't presto changeo. So I'm going to have to do me or sit there and look at my grandchildren and say, I failed to show up today. And baby, I can't take it back. The meeting's already over. So I think that's an important thing to examine. Are we able to stand on our own? At 54, I'm able to stand on my own. Even if there's nobody else in here who's going to say it, then I can go home to my own family and say, I use my voice in service of our people. And I did the best I could, whether or not I made the change. Welcome, my friend. You crack a lot of jokes, but you're a pretty oh. cool cat. <laughs> what's up with you and what's on your mind? I do a lot of interviews in my job, and I've never been more nervous than this one right here. Um, <laughs> no, it's an honor. I'm humbled uh, to be with this group this evening. Um, you know, the level of uh, sophistication and vulnerability and just, you know, wisdom in this room on, on these topics uh, kind of blows me away. So, and it's an honor to be part of this. You know, in my world, I think a lot of us have probably been on our journey, um, and which was certainly accelerated in Minnesota with what took place with Mr. Floyd. And, you know, I, I find myself often taking some level of self-inventory. I suppose we're assessing my, my racial uh, uh, profile or what have you in terms of where I came from and how I grew up and how I, my parents instilled values and the way we looked at the world. And uh, it's been a real interesting time for self-examination, reflection, and I think it has to start there. I really challenge others to, to go through that. Um, I think for me as a leader within my company, um, it really, uh, what really uh, meant the world to me was the ability to listen um, and continue that dialogue to this day with, with an active conversation around what inclusion means to our company, what, what uh, equity means within our company, and then really how people, even on this trip, the sharing that has taken place amongst people in this room, some of which I work with, many of which I don't. Um, and you just learn that everybody has a story. Everybody starts at a different place on that continuum, but we're all trying to advance up that continuum. I got a long way to go, but I'm proud of the fact that at least within my company, I think we're making some progress. So you think about as you leave this trip, what's the action that you can take? You know, what are the things we can all do? And, you know, I've, I've always felt like our jobs or leaders is to leave the company in a better place when you leave than when you found it. Um, thankfully, I work for great people who support everything around diversity, equity, and inclusion. But it also starts with admitting you don't have all the answers. And... Um, I appreciate, I think I'm getting work tonight for budget, you know, <laughs> by Tanya, so, which, you know, <laughs> our head of people and cultures in the room and she's happy to hear it, but, um, but that's good. And that's a good reminder. And, but it's a journey. It's a long journey, but there's a huge opportunity and yes, it's good for business, but it's also good for community. And um, I happen to work for a fairly high profile company that, that has a platform that, that, um, that can help educate and ultimately help bring community together. The biggest challenge that we deal with or that I'm seeing right now is some level of fatigue around the topic. And I tend to be the, the guy that continues to bring it up and push it because I think it needs to be pushed at the top. But there's fatigue, even amongst my leadership group, which is a challenge that I'm looking for counsel on how we overcome that and reinvigorate it. This trip is a great example of how to do it. I'm not sure I can bring everybody on this trip. Certainly. But that's to me the challenge is I'm not and I don't want to wait for the next tragedy. Thank you. To accelerate the Absolutely. work. You understand you. what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think it's so important for leaders to call out that fatigue in places and spaces like this. We hear about it, but it's usually in a whisper. I didn't whisper. Absolutely. It's usually in that one or two person. I'm in a room with the CEO who's willing to say it because we've been in partnership for a lot of years, but it's not often that we're willing to call that out because we can't, you mentioned it yesterday, nothing that's not faced can be changed. That's right. And often we get fatigued by things when we aren't making progress. We're talking, we're having the conversations, it's painful, it's hard, but I can't see the fruit of it. And maybe I don't even know what progress looks like. 
So I'm exhausted and I'm exhausted by feeling guilty. I think particularly in Minnesota where we've had year after year after year after year of something, whether it is headlines of news about our disparities in education or headlines of news about our disparities in health or headlines about housing, right? We're, we've had all that. And then we've done the work inside to some extent. And yet we're tired because where are we working toward again? Exactly. And I feel like I'm not making progress. So I think as leaders, we have to be able to make sure the case is not just clear for the business case, but what is the work? What will life look like when progress is achieved? How will the average family know what that looks like? What it feels like? Will it show up on my block? Will it show up in my paycheck? Will it show up at the vending machine in the cafeteria? What will be different? And how will it not just be different for people who look like me, but how will it be different for people who look like you? When I go to small towns, we do work not only in in big cities like Minneapolis, St. Paul or Kansas City or Oakland, but we do work also in small communities. And so we're in St. Louis County and Minnesota. We're in St. Cloud. And when I go to places like that, which are much more like the town I'm from in Kansas, I'm struck by the fact that many people are signed up for this work who wouldn't have been five years ago because they're thinking about their grandkids. Those grandkids don't want to come back and live in those towns. And they've got a lot invested there. And they're saying, wait a minute, my grandkids, I raised them to kind of have some values of inclusion, even if I didn't call it that. And as they're matriculating, they're saying, wait a minute, uh-uh, this stuff here is not good. This is not the place I want to be. And so folks are getting toward the end of their careers and saying, it's time to learn about race. Because yes, it's good for business, but to what your point, it's also good for community. And if this isn't a community where my grandkids want to raise their kids because they think they'll raise them to be racist, then it's not a community that I want to leave the same. And so let me do something about that while I'm still leading in some form or fashion in business. Let me do something about that while I'm still on city council. Let me do something about that while I'm volunteering on the PTA. Let me do something about that. So it changes. And I think Those of us in bigger communities, regions, have to take that same thought process, even if it's not about our kids, but the collective, our kids. Your kids might live anywhere in the world and you could be okay with that. But collectively, would we be okay if the headline still looks the same in 25 years? And can that be the pursuit? Can that be the pursuit that we give our teams, the charge of, our charge is not just that we're going to increase our representation by 5% or that we're going to increase our spend by 10%. Our charge is that everything we do here means this community will be drastically different in 25 years than it is. And we'll know what our part of that was. How do we get bold and audacious in the way that Rosa Parks called for? Bold and audacious. 403. The number of years since Africans were kidnapped for the purpose of building wealth in this country. 12, well, let me say that differently. Three, the number of years the United States invested in the Freedmen's Bureau. The term 40 acres and a meal is actually 40 acres and two meals. I don't know how you make reparations for people who've been killed, raped, maimed, stolen, and their families have been rendered, but at least you tried. But we could only stick with it for three years because we got fatigued. 12, the number of years we committed to reconstruction. The time when African-Americans newly emancipated took over every conceivable industry, including politics, and showed up in our brilliant ways. And the clapback, Jim Crow. And today, the new Jim Crow. So if we are tired, think about how tired we must be. 403 years shadow boxing with something we don't need, something we didn't create, and something that does not serve us. We teach our children that we are in a relay, that the term we use is a luta continua, the struggle continues. Because in 1966, Mike Wallace and CBS News created a documentary called Black Power, White Backlash. And Mike Wallace asked Dr. King, Dr. King, how long is this all gonna go on? And Dr. King said, we don't know, you have to ask white people. And then he asked Stokely Carmichael, Stokely, what can white people do in the movement? And he said, civilize other white people. 
What has happened in this world is not only uncivil, it is unjust and immoral. If that does not cause us, in the words of Dr. King, to feel absolutely maladjusted, then he said something is absolutely wrong with our hearts. So if you have loved ones who are going to come up after you, that can be your clarion call. Because otherwise, in any number of years, they're going to be sitting in this room with two different people. Well, Tawana will probably still be here. Two different <laughs> people, three different people doing the same thing. And you can give them freedom from that today. I'm so happy that you spoke up and that you're here because your organization's huge and it has visibility everywhere. So if you whisper, you're going to change a whole bunch of things. And your company is also very big and also can bring to bear significant change economically for all of our communities, including black people. The last thing I will say is that I hope what you take with you is that none of the struggles we have been engaged in were for us alone. Never did we say voting rights for black people. We said voting rights for everybody. We didn't say human rights for black people. We said human rights for everybody. We are offering equity to everybody while we are demanding the same. George Floyd had a literal foot on his neck and black people have had and continue to have a literal figurative foot on our necks too. It's not up to us to decide how we get it off. It's up to you to take it off. Team. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. I want to say thank you to all of the people who came today and over the course of this trip to all the people who are supporting enthusiastically the idea that things can be different. Tawana said inclusion is a verb. Racism is a verb. Sexism is a verb. Homophobia is a verb. Xenophobia is a verb. You decide which verb you want attributed to you. For me, I want it to be growth. I want it to be expansion. I want it to be excited that I am not bound by somebody's exterior to decide my relationship with them. The captain taught us so many things, but among them he taught us that he is no longer bound by skin. And God willing in the creek don't rise. <sighs> soon and very soon, all of us will be able to see that way. President Black, Tawana Black, the president, founder, and visionary for the Center for Economic Inclusion. Will you please bring us home? So I don't know how much more I could add from there. I rose this morning with gratitude for this space, for the responsibility to hold in beloved embrace team of people, most of whom who are not here to do the work of helping people come to understand what is within their power to do to build workplaces that embody racial equity, inclusion, and belonging on new terms, terms that don't move Black people toward a standard that has been established through the roots of white supremacy, but create new standards through a lens of anti-racism. I woke up grateful for that opportunity. I woke up grateful and said thanks for the opportunity to hold space with and for each one of you, not knowing what the day would bring. Our work is about relentless pursuit of an economy that works for everyone. Relentless pursuit. I think that's probably what our reputation is as well. And I invite you fully into embracing that as you think about what those actions are you take back with you how you invest your time and your talent your resources to be in relentless pursuit of justice of racial equity knowing that it requires inclusive actions and investments and that we are fully capable of them and have everything within our hands our powers and our being to be able to do this and to do it together 
Thank you. I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. I woke up this morning with my mind stayed freedom. I woke up this morning with my mind stayed on freedom. Hallelujah. 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 We wish for you tomorrow that you would wake up tomorrow and every day thereafter with your mind stayed on freedom. Good night.